Thomas, when I look up at the sky, I see planes that don't flap their wings. When I look down into the oceans, well, we can see submarines that don't have fins. To fly and to swim, we haven't modeled nature, but it seems to get stronger, more general AI. We seem to want to model the brain. Talk me through the logic there and whether or not that's working as a concept at the moment. When you talk about flight and people who try and develop flight, it does make me think about some of the earliest uh, pioneers of flight. And initially, there's lots of people who tried to come up with ways that did mimic uh, the flapping wings of nature. There's one in particular, a guy called Franz Reichelt, who uh, tragically was killed jumping off the Eiffel Tower in his sort of flapping bird device that he'd built. The question that you're getting at here reminds me of this uh, parable about a sort of primitive civilization that's trying to get to the moon, and they're building hot air balloons because that's the only way they know how to get into the sky. Um, and they build successively bigger and bigger hot air balloons and conclude since each hot air balloon is going higher and higher, eventually all it will take is for them to make a hot air balloon to go to the moon. So it's a question of whether you really have the ability to know in advance which line of pursuit of technology is going to get you uh, towards your final goal. Now, if your final goal is to create something intelligent, I think the issue that we have is almost that we don't have a really rigorous definition of what general intelligence is. If you have a computer with a programming language, you can program it to do all sorts of different tasks. So if your definition of intelligence is a single device that's capable of performing multiple tasks, then a, a computer with sufficient software is intelligent by itself. But we don't really think of it that way. We have other sort of ideas about what intelligence might entail. Perhaps a general intelligence would sort of need to be conscious, self-aware. It would be, need to be able to learn, uh, adapt itself. And I think the reason people look to the brain is because the only evidence we have of anything intelligent, that uh, any sort of intelligence that manifests itself, is, is only from nature and only from uh, the brain. One of the first ideas from AI came from this Dartmouth conference in the 1950s, when there was a group of scientists, they, they met up over a summer, and they decided that if they could program a computer to do the things that a human was able to do, then they would obviously have made a very big advance and this could advance them in all sorts of different fields. And initially they sort of tried to teach a computer as you would teach a child by showing it lots and lots of different concepts, uh, defining lots and lots of different words, many, many different ideas. And, and then of course, all of the rules that linked these symbolic concepts together. Um, and this was what was called, and I think is now still called good old fashioned AI. So it's this idea that you can get intelligence, you can hard code intelligence, just by introducing tens of thousands of concepts, like a huge dictionary, define all the rules that link them together so that the thing will know fire plus water equals steam, smoke, extinguished fire, all that sort of thing. And of course, the reason this didn't work was that it was just prohibitively difficult to program all of that in there in the first place. And so you've had more recently the two sort of major attempts to get to uh, useful algorithms that can perform tasks. You have evolutionary AI, where people... Uh, have algorithms that essentially have certain behaviors that are allowed to vary, as in evolution, through sort of mutations. And then at the end of each generation of these algorithms being produced, they will be compared to some sort of fitness function, which will determine you know, how well the algorithm is doing at its task. And all of the unsuccessful algorithms will be killed. So you're implementing a sort of natural selection that does mimic nature in that sense. And then you have the neural networks. Now, the neural networks are sort of somewhat inspired by how we believe that the brain works, but they're not actually detailed modeling of the brain. Instead, you have a setup where you have lots and lots of different statistical connections 
between different nodes in this network. And as you train the network on data, some of the connections are reinforced and some of the other connections are uh, lapsed. They have lower weights on them. And this is what allows the neural network to map from inputs to certain kinds of output. And this isn't, we don't know necessarily whether this is how the brain actually works in practice, because in the brain, we know that lots of what's important about cognition uh, doesn't just involve neurons, but other parts of the biological brain as well. But it is our sort of conceptual idea about how learning happens in humans. Now, when it comes to how quickly we can get towards general AI, there's this conception that, okay, the only way that we know will work is by mimicking the intelligence that we've seen. There might be some other way of getting there, but we don't necessarily know that it will work. And the question then comes, in what level of detail do you have to simulate a brain to actually manifest a more general intelligence? And this is where I think uh, your question comes in, because at present, we're an awfully long way off uh, developing an intelligence of that kind. Um, there's a project at the moment called Open Worm, which is aiming to simulate the brain of the nematode worm, which is probably the simplest uh, brain that we have mapped in detail. It's, uh, if I remember rightly, a few hundred neurons compared to the billions in the human brain. And even simulating this in a sufficient level of detail to get something that might behave like a nematode worm purely from simulating its brain is, is a challenge that's at the edge of what computer science can do at the moment. And so when you imagine the additional layers of complexity that would come in simulating more complex animals or humans, you can see that simulating the brain, although it is a path that we suspect would eventually probably be successful, is an awfully long way off. And there's still an awful lot of disagreement about what level you would need to simulate it in to actually capture the basic features of uh, human cognition and human consciousness. If you and I were to design a computer program uh, for fun, just let's say a game that, that simulated a worm in a garden in, in its environment, it feels to me that we wouldn't have to put too much computer programming into fool many people that this this was behaving much like a, a worm. It's, I, I think about what a worm does. Yet it sounds to me like you're saying the brain of, of that worm is still relatively complex compared to computation that we have or other things that we know and can map uh, around us. Have I understood that correctly? Yes, that's right. And I think it's interesting that you say uh, it's much, much easier to mimic the behavior than it is to mimic what actually leads to that behavior. I think that's very true. And I think what what's really telling for me about AI and the sort of hype around the field at the moment is, um, so it's sort of tangential, but there's an interesting guy uh, from Leeds uh, called Steve Verzik, who you may know about, who's developed this chatbot called Mitsuku. And, I know Steve, uh, yes. Mitsuku is essentially a chatbot that he has programmed in his uh, in his basement or in his office for the last 10 or 20 years by manually hand-typing all of the possible responses to the questions that people will ask his chatbot. And this is essentially a sort of good old-fashioned AI approach to the problem of passing the Turing test. He defines an artificial intelligence in the sort of way that you would uh, manually input every possible symbolic answer to every possible symbolic question that people would ask of it and it can then resemble something intelligent but steve is very honest about his uh, chatbot he says you know there's nothing actually intelligent here it's all just things that i've written it's essentially in some ways a, a glorified dictionary with extremely complicated rules and yet the responses that steve gets so often for his chatbot are people who believe 
that his AI is somehow sentient or conscious, even though they can see its limitations for themselves when they talk to it. Um, and this goes way back to the very, very first natural language processing systems. Uh, there was uh, a programming system called ELISA, which was developed in the 1960s, I believe. And this essentially mimicked a Rogerian psychotherapist. So whenever you told it something about your life, it would say things like, tell me more, or how does X make you feel, and so on. It was essentially just rephrasing the things that you had told it back at you. And what happened when this was actually used on people was a lot of them seemed to think that the therapist did actually understand them and was more conscious than it was. So I think in this whole area, we need to be very careful to remember that mimicking a behavior is much easier than mimicking the complex consciousness that goes into that behavior. And also that we have a tendency to anthropomorphize things. We have a sort of innate idea that things are either not alive or alive. And if anything starts betraying some of the uh, traits of being alive, then we're sort of subconsciously shifting it into that category. And I think this is why things like Eliza and things like Mitsuku, which ultimately are fancy code, but code, uh, can be mistaken for people by something more than they are. I put it to Steve recently that if people were falling in love with his chatbot, Mitsuku, they were in a sense falling in love with him. Uh, because as you say, it is just lines of his code, lines of his English language that he's chosen to use, and I'm sure he cross-references them, of course. You talked about anthropomorphism, which is interesting, and people anthropomorphize teddy bears and they anthropomorphize the universe. And we certainly have a huge tendency to do this. And one thing I put to the European Robotics League recently is why is there a tendency to put eyes on robots? It's not necessary, and it's leading us down a path to what I can only assume is they want to create humanoid or human-like robots in the future. Could you tell us a bit more where this comes from, this tendency to see things as human that aren't? I think in some ways it's just to do with our... Perhaps it's something cultural, perhaps it's something evolutionary, but it, it sort of makes sense that there's not really much space in our uh, cognition in our way of relating to the world for understanding things that are governed by rules of mathematics, for example, rather than uh, being sort of conscious animals or, or humans that we interact with. I think anthropomorphizing things helps us because we can use the sort of set of ways we have of understanding each other and the ways we have of understanding humans to then relate to this new entity. I mean, when it comes to Steve... Verzik and Mitsuku, I think that the genius that he has is he's he reads all of the conversations that people have with his bot. And this means that he has essentially become an expert in the human psychology that applies to the very specific niche situation of people talking to a chatbot. He knows the kind of things that people will say to Mitsuku, and it allows him to come up with responses that are uh, the best at um, making uh, the user think that they're talking to something sentient something interesting to talk to now this is just a manual process for him where he's doing this every evening in his office but one of the interesting developments that uh, i think has maybe passed us by a little bit in the west is uh, microsoft have this chatbot called showice and showice follows the sort of neural network approach to chatbots so i should say in advance the reason we're talking about mitsuku is that mitsuku is 
the chatbot that is closest to passing the Turing test. They have a competition every year called the Loebner Prize, which gives you the uh, robot that is most human-like in conversation. But this Shaoist robot, which is predominantly uh, in Asia, in uh, Mandarin and Japanese and Korean um, at the moment, is, is a neural network approach. So it doesn't rely on hand-scripted responses. Instead, it is uh, using the neural net approach of being trained on huge amounts of conversational data. And fundamentally, the architecture of this uh, chatbot, Shaoist, is that it tailors its responses to keep people engaged, to keep them talking to the bot for as long as possible. And it's actually attempting to maximize the number of response turns in the conversation that people have with it. And I think in some ways you can sort of see how such a bot and, you know, I've seen a conference where the guy from Microsoft came and talked about Shaois and they were very proud of the fact that there was one user who talked to this thing for 24 hours in a row, you know, and had thousands of responses back and forth and was talking to it more than any of their friends and so on. And I think if you're in a situation where there's an incredibly complex algorithm that is being uh, allowed to train itself on lots and lots of user data, lots and lots of conversations and told to maximize your engagement and maximize your commitment, then you have all of that plus your innate tendency to anthropomorphize things that aren't human because that's sort of how you know to deal with things. It, it's understandable why people uh, might view these systems as more complicated or more sentient than they actually are. Yes, and so when I think about that, you're saying that Steve is able to predict behaviors just like you and I could predict the behavior of the proverbial worm that we talked about. Um, he's not predicting the decision-making process to get to that. He's merely responding to the, the output. No. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yes. And of course, there's, there's huge amounts of things going on in our brains and in the brains of animals that we don't even appreciate are going on the whole time. I mean, if you sort of imagine your own thought process, you might be thinking that it's a, a, a sort of endless stream of text going on in your mind or something like that. But where this comes from, how this is generated originally, uh, the sort of complex ways in which it interacts with your surroundings, and of course all of the stuff that's going on purely to keep you alive in terms of homeostasis, digesting food, regulating your body temperature, all this kind of thing. It, it's all complexity that is contained in this one organ, such that you could mimic the behavior of it simply by, in, in the same way as you can you know, video someone and then watch the video over and over again, you can sort of see the behavior. But it, it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a surface level of a much deeper phenomenon. You talked about natural, natural selection earlier, and then sort of artificial natural selection. Um, natural selection that makes me think of Darwin and survival of the most adaptive and the way that sort of genetic uh, mutations can cause beneficial results in terms of access to food or uh, mates or, or able to avoid predators and so on that that always struck me as a struck me as a survival uh, opportunity the way that you described artificial natural selection sounded more like you were talking about progress or, or innovation is that different well, the, I think the genetic algorithms that people come up with is basically just trying to say, okay, well, we, own, we know of only one process in the universe that has ever produced intelligence, and that's natural selection. And natural selection uh, can sort of force things into various biological niches. You think about uh, all the sort of symbiotic creatures we have. It wouldn't really make sense if you were designing a creature from scratch to say, well, this will depend on some other creature to survive. But if it turns out to be a successful strategy, then 
the uh, the sort of optimizer of natural selection will find all of the possible successful strategies and um, eventually you know given enough time you will see all of them manifest themselves um, so I think the, the interesting thing here is although this is much slower because many of the algorithms that you're producing as indeed many of the mutations that are produced in natural selection are useless and therefore not the kind of thing that we would uh, intentionally or consciously look to produce it can also allow you to find counterintuitive solutions so one of the ways that these uh, algorithms are often uh, used or deployed is in the context of playing computer games because a computer game is a, a brilliantly structured environment you know there's always a very obvious goal normally to finish the level or to get as many points as you can this kind of thing and um, if you set an, al an evolutionary algorithm playing one of these basic computer games um, sort of randomly mutating the buttons that it will press and so forth what they eventually do is they cheat they find the flaws in the code they find the ways to break the game they'll find some uh, bug that will give them an infinite score or an unbelievably high score and it, it's a counterintuitive solution that uh, no one would set forth and design to begin with but that can be found if you sort of iterate through this very very large space of possible evolutions so when it comes to a sort of innovation uh, landscape generally when people innovate I think they usually have an idea of how their system is going to work when they're designing it they're not just sort of randomly stabbing about in the dark, although sometimes it can seem like that. But um, so I think there are differences in the approaches to evolution from the sort of natural selection point of view, where you say, OK, well, we're just going to define this one function to optimize. And that's can you survive and pass on your genes and reproduce? And in the case of a evolutionary algorithm, this will be how successful is the algorithm at performing a task? And then it, it weans away all the ones that are unsuccessful versus a sort of a more human-driven design and evolution process. And I think some of the interesting approaches to AI where people are saying, well, could we try and combine the two approaches? Because we know that if you just let raw evolution try to come up with intelligence, well, it took billions of years on Earth. Um, it could take far, far longer and require far, far more hardware and far more uh, iterations between software to take place uh, in the context of a computer. So if you have a designer who's also uh, looking over the evolving algorithms and picking out the ones that it thinks are the most promising, could you maybe accelerate this process? I mean, to me, it's not clear that we know what all of the waypoints on the way to a fully evolved intelligence are in the same way as we don't necessarily know what all of the waypoints on the way from uh, the first light-sensitive chemicals on a bacteria all the way forth to the human eye kind of difficult to see what those waypoints are in advance but it, it's a it's a process that might be uh, faster and might accelerate development but i think again you have to be careful to say that any of this stuff is around the corner because it's it's easy to make predictions that say 10 years 20 years 30 years we'll have an algorithm like this but what's much much more difficult is saying okay if, if you're giving me a prediction of that kind i want to see your roadmap if you're saying we'll have general intelligence in 50 years what will we have in 25 years? What will we have in 10 years? What will we have in five years? You know, yeah. it's like you almost want a business plan for this sort of thing to be outlined. And if you don't have that and you don't know what the waypoints are in the way, then it's very difficult for you to say that you can be confident in that final prediction. Does that make sense? It absolutely does, because this thing isn't going to be switched on overnight. And as you say, what would be the roadmap? What would be the stations up the mountain that would be indications that you were making progress towards that goal? 
if um, we fitted out every single car on the planet right now with autonomous driving capabilities and, and LiDAR and cameras and so on, I think it's fair to say that tomorrow would be a challenging day on the roads, including <laughs> yes. carnage and death. I think we can agree on that. But what would a week or a month or a year look like if we just insisted on keeping these things going so that these algorithms could learn at mass scale? I mean, would we have autonomous vehicles in in 30 days if we did that? <laughs> I, I don't think so. Um, mostly because I'm 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 not always convinced by so the current thinking in in machine learning is that the more data you have the better and this is certainly true and it's being demonstrated in things like uh, OpenAI's GPT-2 which is this new text generating device uh, this new text generating algorithm which can produce stuff that I will admit I thought five ten years ago we would never see a neural network producing for, for decades and decades um, but it can and there don't seem to be too many developments beyond raw data acquisition and processing so in that sense you might think if you had your system where you had lots and lots of self-driving cars driving around and trying not to hit each other they would all learn incredibly rapidly but with a self-driving car there's also hardware limitations uh, the quality of the data that you're getting through and complex aspects to do with the decision making of the car I think people would be reluctant to see them deployed. I mean, I'm sure you saw the news story recently where uh, a, a jaywalker in New York uh, was hit and killed by an autonomous vehicle purely because when they had... So how do they tell it not to hit pedestrians? Well, they feed it thousands and thousands of images of pedestrians crossing a pedestrian crossing and say, this is a terrible idea. Uh, this is when you should break, slow down to a stop and not hit the pedestrian. But they hadn't trained it on any images of jaywalkers because they just hadn't thought of that as something that could happen. And it just goes to show that there can be things that people can overlook in the fundamental architecture behind how these machines work um, that can lead them to be flawed. And so if you did have this massive sudden rollout, I'm sure, as you say, the first week afterwards, we'd find an awful lot of those. Um, beyond that, I think you'd have to talk to some of the machine vision people uh, specifically about the problems that they see with autonomous vehicles. One of the ones that does concern me is the idea that um, a lot of these machine vision algorithms can be fooled uh, through spoofing, through essentially you, you can create images that will trick the algorithm into thinking that it's looking at something other than it is. And this isn't so much a case of, you know, someone uh, dressing up as a piece of tarmac so that it thinks that it's driving over the road. No, you, you can do it just with... Uh, a few pixels different here and there because the way that these algorithms perceive uh, images is very different to how humans perceive images. There was a good study that showed a good example of this actually. If, if you were being told to identify polar bears uh, versus say ducks or cows or any other species, you would probably do just as good a job if the bear was in uh, full colour or in silhouette. You'd be able to identify the silhouette of the bear just as easily as you could identify the full colour photo of the bear. That's not true for machine learning algorithms, because the way that they identify images is based on how does each pixel relate to each adjacent pixel. We probably identify things more based on their outline, which is why you can still sort of navigate in your room when it's dark and shadowy. But these machine learning algorithms uh, can 
judge things based on how each pixel relates to each other pixel, which means that if you put something in a silhouette, suddenly it can't recognize it anymore if all it's ever been trained on is uh, full color photos. So in a similar way, how do you know that your training data set, even if you think that it's very good for this autonomous vehicle, is going to generalize to every individual situation? But I think it's important to say that actually in some ways the algorithms can be better. So if you scramble up the polar bear image such that you sort of like one of those toy puzzles you get where an image is scrambled and you have to rearrange it, if you divided it into 20 squares and rearranged them all randomly, the algorithm would still be great at recognizing that as a polar bear even when a human might struggle because actually the relationships between these adjacent pixels, which is what it's really looking at, haven't changed all that much just because you've uh, scrambled a few of them around. So it's interesting to know, and I think this is important when it comes to looking at how these narrow AI algorithms are doing things, it's important to have a sense of their psychology so that you can understand in advance, so to speak, uh, how they will fail and how you can stop them from failing. Yes, great example there that um, we'd still be able to recognize the polar bear, but I see your point that that doesn't necessarily uh, help you to avoid a polar bear on the road. No. Uh, that's a different sort of challenge. The phrase um, necessity is the mother of all invention is coming to mind as you speak of all this. And it's it's difficult sometimes to see what the necessi necessity is when we look at all these developments around AI. Um, and that's not just AI. We look at other technologies like blockchain. And sometimes people say, well, blockchain is a solution looking for a problem. So what, what necessity do you see that's being solved by artificial intelligence right now in 2019? So when we talk about artificial intelligence, I think we've already been sort of making this distinction, but I think it's very important to recall that there's two types, really. There's the strong general AI that people hypothesize about and we speculate about. We speculated about how you might develop it earlier in the show. And then there's these narrow machine learning algorithms. Now, when it comes to these machine learning algorithms, the necessity that they're solving is how on earth can you possibly process all of the data that we're all generating all of the time? This simply can't be done by hand anymore. The, the recommendation algorithms for something like Netflix, something like YouTube, something like Amazon, um, the algorithms that service adverts, the algorithms that determine what you see on the internet, there's no way that any human could ever process all of the data that's being taken in there. And ultimately, it's this desire to leverage these streams of data into solving problems better. That is why people are developing these machine learning algorithms. So is it a necessity? Well, it depends what you mean by necessity, doesn't it? In some ways, you're saying, uh, I mean, if we have all of these streams of data and there's a perception that they can be converted into uh, understanding of human behavior, even in the case of a recommendation algorithm, manipulation of human behavior, then that in turn can be converted into profit. And if necessity is not necessarily the mother of invention, then profit certainly tends to be a pretty good one as well. Yeah, that's, that's a good comeback, actually, that profit also drives innovation. Of course it does. We, we're taking a few risks, though, aren't we? Whether we're driven by necessity or whether we're driven by profit. Um, I spoke to Stuart Armstrong recently, someone I, I know that you know, and he doesn't see AI as an existential threat to humanity. And I think you have to draw a clear line between what's a threat to humanity in terms of wiping out all human footprint with fairly immediate effect and one that 
almost wipes out all human footprint, but allows the population to rebuild itself. And they are slightly different things, although both fairly devastating. But he doesn't see AI as, as one that could wipe us out. Um, we talked about evolution earlier, and I was going to ask you whether you thought whether neuromorphic implants were a form of natural selection of the future. And also, while you answer that, if you can tell me whether you think that extension of AI is evolution, and if it is, is it the evolution of machines or the evolution of human beings? Wow, so we're touching on an awful lot of topics here. Okay, I'll, I'll try and uh, deal with all of these points. Um, so natural selection, insofar as it applies to humans in the Darwinian sense, is sort of over. We're, we're in a situation now where people who would naturally probably have died um, can be kept alive by medical science, by a sort of caring, tolerant society. Um, there are still evolutionary pressures on individuals, but it's also clear that the developments that we're capable of making over the course of a sort of short uh, of an extremely short time are now far outstripping the uh, natural evolution of the human species. So there's this idea that, you know, we'll take charge of our evolution. I think that's already happened. Think how long it would have taken us to naturally evolve uh, an immunity to something like smallpox. Well, we've wiped it out. There are some people now who naturally have an immunity to things like HIV, but we have developed the drugs and the technology that can uh, enable people to live with that condition for, for an awfully long time. And, of course, we've developed ways to prevent people from contracting it in the first place. So you can sort of view medical science and these technologies as already, in a sense, accelerating human evolution. Um, and people will talk about, you know, we, we think of all sorts of fancy ways that we could uh, make ourselves smarter or make ourselves physically better. Um, you've talked about neuromorphic implants as an example. I mean... When it comes to a lot of people, simply doing things like correcting the iodine deficiency that a lot of people still have, uh, particularly in the developing world, would, would make us as a species on average smarter. So I think we, we have already taken some level of, not control, but um, it's in the same way that with climate change and CO2 emissions, we're, uh, we're sort of controlling the climate, just not in a direction that we necessarily know anything about. I think with medical science, of course, we are generally trying to keep people alive uh, uh, for as long as possible. So we are sort of controlling our evolution uh, in a positive direction. In the long term, I think that's certainly, if, if technology continues to develop in the way it will, there's just no question that this will be the way that the human species evolves. N no question at all. I mean, the, the, the pace of change of technology is tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of times faster than uh, natural selection. And so whether any of these uh, technologies manifest themselves in 100 years or 1,000 years or 10,000 years doesn't really matter because all of that will be faster than natural evolution. And, you know, there, there's this idea that, okay, you have a neuromorphic implant that makes you more intelligent. Well, true, but you also have a smartphone on which you can look up uh, almost anything uh, in the world of human knowledge, although, you know, you might spend it on Twitter instead or looking at YouTube cat videos or something. But technically, this is a piece of technology that has made you much smarter. And yet we don't necessarily think of it as humans uh, being augmented or controlling their evolution in any way, even though it very much is. So 
I think maybe the borderline between uh, biological enhancements and technology like a smartphone that we view to be, as being very external to who we are is is going to blur in coming decades but it's 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 kind of a continuation of a process that's been going on for a, well since the invention of writing really the difference between a nanosecond something that we could achieve with technology or perhaps with quantum technology the difference between a nanosecond and a second is the same proportion as the difference between a second and 31 years so I, I agree with everything you're saying, but the, the speed that neuromorphic implants could provide, the speed of which AI might operate is fathoms times faster than we've maybe seen in the past. What, what kind of risks does that present or, or what kind of risks do you see from AI in general as we go down this path of discovery? So when it comes to risks from AI, I think you really need to divide them up into the speculative risks that come from general AI and the uh, risks from narrow AI and machine learning that are present in the world around us all the time. Um, so to talk about the risks from a hypothetical general AI first, um, bearing in mind that my personal opinion is that I don't think we'll see anything like this for a long time, but assume that it's possible to create, uh, to simulate a human brain well, then, yes, as you say, there's this idea that you could run it on much, much faster hardware. And therefore, even if all you've done is create something as complex as the human brain, which is already an incredible achievement, then perhaps you could speed up uh, the input output of the human brain such that this thing is running at uh, a thousand times speed, a million times speed, in which case this individual brain would have a million years to come up with things that would take uh, humans ordinarily a year. At which point you can sort of see, okay, well, if you have lots of these things running in parallel, then they will be more intelligent than us, and they might learn how to improve themselves to become even more intelligent. In fact, they certainly would. In which case, then you can see a situation where there are general artificial intelligences that are far smarter than the human race. And the reason that people see this as a risk, in my view, is a, is a pretty sound one. If you're an ant, you can't really infer why a human is destroying your uh, anthill. You just have no ability to uh, understand things on their level. They can behave in very unpredictable ways that you wouldn't ever be able to comprehend. So this is why I think this is quite philosophical speculation, because when people imagine these general intelligences, they're imagining something with extraordinary capability, so people will talk about, you know, how do you make an AI safe? How do you program it with a goal that's compatible with the goals of humanity? I mean, to me, that question in, in the philosophical realm that these people ask it is um, almost the same as saying, what would you tell God to do? Because that's the level of difference of capability that people see for this hypothetical uh, general intelligence. So at this point, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of scenarios you could concoct um, that would be damaging for humanity. Um, you know, perhaps such a thing, such an entity, would decide that it didn't need us. We we have no reason to believe that it would be constrained by anything that we had told it to do necessarily. If it's capable of modifying itself, maybe it just says, "I'm not interested in that instruction anymore. I'm going to go and do something else that doesn't involve you at all." Or perhaps 
we do give it an instruction, but we don't specify it correctly. So it's interesting. I had a discussion with someone about this once, and I was talking about this idea of you develop a general AI and um, you want to give it some programming that will ensure that it doesn't harm the human race. What do you program it with? And the guy I was talking to said, utilitarianism, obviously. And I thought to myself, well, that's not obvious at all. Utilitarianism is this sort of philosophy that you do whatever causes the maximum good for the maximum number of people. Okay, well, what's the maximum good? What's good? It varies from person to person. It's not well-defined. It's very difficult to define that in terms of a single mathematical function. If you do try and define it in terms of a single mathematical function, you'll miss out on all kinds of subtleties. I mean, I quite like having a nice chicken meal from Nando's, you know? I also quite enjoy having uh, loving and caring family members. So if you're trying to define all good things in the form of a mathematical function, then you have to say that everything is fungible, everything can be traded with everything else. So can I say that a million meals at Nando's is the same as having a family that love me? You know, it's bizarre. And yet this is the sort of reductionist philosophy that is the best uh, approach to human morality that we could put into such a general AI system. So you can imagine all of these scenarios where we tell the AI to make everyone happy and it decides that happiness is endorphins flowing through a brain and it just injects us all with some sort of heroin or, or indeed kills us all and then replaces us with a circuitry that is just experiencing uh, a simulated endorphin flow forever and ever and ever and it decides that it, it has maximised human happiness in this way. I mean, these are all scenarios that you can sort of imagine, but I think the point of it and the risk of such a thing being developed if it did ever exist is we simply don't know what would happen. That, that's why people call it the singularity. The singularity in physics terms is is the heart of a, of a black hole. Uh, no light can escape from it. There's no way that you can see what's going on there. And I think this idea of a hypothetical general AI is very similar because we have no idea how it would interpret any goal that we gave it or indeed if it would stick to any goal that we gave it in advance, which I think is why it is a legitimate concern, but the important thing is to be realistic and reasonable in your assessment of where these technologies are. So I think in a thousand years, in 10,000 years, if technology continues to develop at this incredible pace, maybe this is the kind of thing that we need to be worried about. But coming back to the other points I was making, which is that there are risks from the narrow machine learning algorithms that we have today, I think these can be underappreciated in the discussion of AI safety. And it basically comes down to the fact that our ability to kind of regulate new technologies lags behind the development of the technology pretty much always. And so there's no rules at the moment against deploying an algorithm in an irresponsible way. So here's an example. These machine learning algorithms that people make nowadays that are trained on all this data are so complex that even the people who make them and run them don't know what they're doing half the time. So take YouTube's algorithm. This is the one that recommends you videos. Um, it recommends you videos based on what it thinks that you will be most likely to spend the most time watching, which means that these networks of videos get set up which are related in the sense that people who liked this also watched lots and lots of that and so forth. And the more you spend, the more time you spend watching one of these recommended videos, the stronger that weight is in the neural network that's doing these recommendations. But the issue then is that 
a lot of people use YouTube for extremist content and they tend to be the people who spend the most time on it, watching video after video after video. And so the weights that lead you from a sort of normal, politically kind of neutral video uh, towards another normal, you know, interesting, politically neutral video are weaker than the ones that lead you from something politically neutral to something politically radical. They've had issues on YouTube where people have discovered rings of paedophiles who are watching, you know, what is essentially softcore child pornography. And because these are the people who watch video after video after video, the, the links between these videos are extremely strong. So once you've started watching one, the algorithm will serve up dozens more. These people are sort of networking in the comments underneath the YouTube uh, algorithm. Obviously, the people at YouTube never intended to set up this kind of ring on their website. But through deploying the algorithm on a complex system without sufficient care, it's led to these unintended consequences. And I think lots of these narrow AIs, the ones that we have to worry about uh, fairness and bias in them, uh, are going to be deployed. They're still being deployed now. And they'll have lots and lots of unintended consequences, purely because of how complex the system is. And we're sort of at the mercy of the people who run them at the moment, because there's just not sufficient regulation in place to say, okay, if your algorithm has these results and these impacts, then you can't use it anymore. The only thing that comes close is the GDPR regulation, which just came in recently in the EU, which does say that you have a right not to be subject to a decision that has been purely made by an algorithm. But even this is very difficult to enforce. And I think there's lots of cases at the moment where people are being subject to decisions that come from machine learning algorithms. And these decisions can't really be explained. And if they're erroneous or unfair, then there's not too much recourse to challenge them. So that's the sort of near-term problem that I see uh, from machine learning technologies for uh, the human race. But I, I, I did a, a podcast a while ago and wrote an article that was based on a report uh, called Malicious Uses of AI. So if you look me up and see Malicious Uses of AI, there'll be some other examples there as well. One of the things that people are worried about, for example, is automated hacking, uh, where you have, well, essentially hacking that's done by algorithms rather than people who can... Uh, that the algorithms can sort of test lot, uh, thousands and thousands of different lines of code in a defense network for flaws, and they can do it much quicker than people. So in this sort of thing, you end up with an arms race between the algorithms that fight the algorithms and the algorithms that hack the other algorithms and all this sort of thing. Um, so this is the other sort of thing that could cause near-term disruption. Yes, and in summary there, you've talked about two key things. You've talked about the fact that these narrow AIs are uh, impressively working away in areas like recruitment and the judiciary system to make decisions that affect lives and, and that is fairly profound in itself and as we cast our minds back you know 140 years ago not that long and certainly not that long on the human timeline of probably 10,000 years now of modern brains and 200,000 years of kind of looking like a, a relatively modern human 140 years ago we're on horseback so to think what the next 5, 10, 140 years looks ahead of us is near impossible. So I guess that's where the mind could wonder. And I think it's also negatively enhanced. I mean, we, we all love the movies and we love sci-fi, but we just saw that new Terminator movie, Dark Fate, come out. And uh, in it is this incredible humanoid robot that can almost withstand anything with its, its purpose of wiping out a human being's life, which is... Uh, 
a bit of a daft concept, really, because I'd have thought a, a drone with some basic facial recognition, computer, computer vision, computer uh, software on board of it, and a laser could do that job much more simply and quickly. But then I guess that would be a rather short movie if that was the case. How does the risk compare of continuing to develop these AIs that will make decisions on uh, human outcomes. How does the risk compare to, say, 1945, when we were thinking about whether to, well, before that, develop the atomic bomb, and in, in 1945, whether we dropped it on certain cities around the world? Is, is that a comparison that we can even refer to? So, in some ways, we're in a better situation than we were at the dawn of the atomic age, and in other ways, we're in a far worse situation. So let me try and explain what I mean by that. For me, 1945, the development of the atomic bomb, was a huge moment in human history, purely because at this point, the stakes were very, very real. We now had devices that had the capacity to, if not wipe out the human race, then kill, at the touch of a button, millions of people, which is not something that humans had ever had before. There was no way that we could have uh, personally ever uh, severely threatened the continuation of our own species and the, well, the continuation of most uh, other species on Earth. But now that technology had been liberated and uh, put into the hands of humans for the first time. And there's all sorts of stories about how people thought this would go. The scientists at the time, for example, they had... Uh, a specific there's an apocryphal story and it, it probably is true about the scientist having a bet about whether or not the device when detonated would cause runaway nuclear fusion reactions in the atmosphere i mean i don't think any of them took it seriously i think the odds on the bet were pretty good it's always a good idea to have a bet if you can where if you lose the world ends and therefore you don't have to pay out on the bet it's always very helpful but um even though this was considered unlikely the fact that it was considered a possibility showed that the scientists at the time knew that what they were developing had the capacity to massively alter the face of the planet and, well, destroy an awful lot of life on Earth, potentially. And so what you see in the uh, political activities of the scientists at the time is a tendency towards something that uh, Einstein was involved with, a sort of philosophy that was called one world or none, which was this idea that people would have to work together uh, governments would have to work together to prevent there being any sort of large-scale nuclear war. Now, obviously, when you look at the Cold War, you can say things were pretty tense at a number of points, um, <laughs> particularly the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's lots of famous incidents from uh, history, and I talk about some of them in my podcast, nuclear near misses, uh, where all kinds of insanely dangerous things were going on. Uh, there was the particular case of Stanislav Petrov that a lot of people know about where he was on an early warning system uh, versus the uh, Americans. He was uh, a colonel. The early warning system said that Russia was being bombarded with several different missiles. He didn't report it because he thought that the Americans only sending six missiles was a bit strange if you want to win the Cold War. So the theory was you'd need to send hundreds of thousands and try and destroy every city in the opposing territory. Um, so he didn't report that, and it turned out to be a false alarm. So he's one of several people who has a claim to have saved uh, the world as we know it, if not the whole of the human race in some ways. Although you can always dispute about how many people would die in a global thermonuclear war, I think. In some ways, it becomes a bit academic. It's not something that you want to happen. So the difference that we have 
nowadays is that the technological developments that are arising are they have the potential to be deployed by much smaller groups of people and that is dangerous it's extremely difficult for uh, a, a small group of people to themselves build an atomic bomb or an atomic arsenal of bombs we know this because there have been terrorists uh, terrorist organizations throughout the years who have tried to get their hands on them and failed there was a, a cult in japan called om shinrikyo which you may have heard of they were responsible for the tokyo subway uh, sarin gas attacks in 1995 and they tried to source all kinds of uh, deadly weapons uh, alongside uh, biological weapons chemical weapons that they eventually used in this sarin gas attack they also tried to source a nuclear bomb from the Russians, but they couldn't get it. And this was a cult that was very well funded. There were lots of millionaires involved in it. Uh, there were lots of smart people. They attracted scientists uh, to their cause. And their aim was essentially to wipe out the human race. They wanted to destroy most of the world so that they could... Uh, it's, it's what we call the sort of millenarian philosophy they had, where they thought, if we destroy the world, then something brilliant can take its place, and this will be, you know at the hands of our supreme leader. Om Shinrikyo didn't manage to do that. But nowadays we have new kinds of technology and they're developing faster and faster, very difficult to regulate. One example is with CRISPR gene editing. So there's a famous experiment that was conducted five or six years ago where the researchers demonstrated that with CRISPR gene editing kit, with stuff that was available to any lab in the country, uh, any sort of reasonably decent scientists these people weren't even experts in what they were doing they were i think they were physicists rather than biologists but they you know were fairly smart and they had about a hundred thousand dollars of funding for this lab equipment and they were able to resurrect the extinct horsepox virus which is a close cousin of the smallpox virus smallpox uh which we talked about being wiped out before is is currently kept as a biological weapon by the governments of the us and uh russia um, but essentially what this has shown is that all it would take now is for someone to have access to the smallpox genome, uh, $100,000 of funding and a few decent scientists, and they would be able to develop this very dangerous biological weapon. And you can imagine that things like nanotechnology and you know other forms of gene editing are going to put the power to uh, create large-scale destruction in a much, much larger number of hands. And this means that the coordination problem that the scientists after 1945 had to try and solve, where they were attempting to prevent world governments from blowing each other up and destroying humanity, this could become a much more difficult problem if the technologies allow smaller groups of people and even individuals to have more power uh, over the physical world, in, in a sense, than, uh, than they had before. And so in some ways I think it's better because we got through the nuclear crisis, although there's still nuclear weapons primed and ready to fly at any moment and people we might not necessarily trust with their fingers on the buttons. But it, it demonstrated that there are ways that we can avoid destroying ourselves, but I think they rely on a level of wisdom and cooperation that we haven't yet developed. Do you think that wisdom is coming or do you think that wisdom will only come as we see things from a different perspective and perhaps from a machine perspective rather than a human perspective? The question is, does it take machines to take humans' real morality? 
That's an interesting one. I mean, I I can sort of see the argument, but at the same time, I'm very reluctant to put, for example, uh, machines in charge of something like uh, nuclear weapons. There's been talk about how machine learning might affect the prospects for nuclear war. And you could sort of see how it might in the sense that maybe if a machine learning algorithm was more intelligent than a human, it would find some way of executing a nuclear war without uh, unacceptable risks to your own civilians. This was what kept us alive really during the Cold War, was not actually any heady ideals of morality or or uh, cooperation or anything like that. It's just that neither side wanted to take the necessary risk. I think if you're imagining a scenario like the one I outlined, where new disruptive technologies show up, which can be used by a very, very great number of people, then it's extremely difficult to see how this wisdom is going to diffuse itself into all of those people because it would only take a small group it would only take one it would only take a few thousand it would only take a, a small disaffected group of people to enact something like this and if you are in that situation then it, it it's extremely difficult to see what you could do about it even if i mean we are seeing overall that society is becoming more peaceful but there are still groups of people who would quite gladly sort of take and use this kind of violent power against uh, the powers that be if they if they could, if they were able to. And I, I don't really see that going away anytime soon. And I don't know whether anything can necessarily stop it, which is why I hope that our best hope lies in, one, the idea that these technologies will be very difficult to develop, two, that we can come up with decent countermeasures in time and three that we can regulate the development of new technologies to make sure that if this sort of thing is developed then it's extremely tightly controlled and it doesn't diffuse out to people um and there has been some degree of success with this when it comes to nuclear proliferation you know there were a lot of nations that perhaps could have gone into the nuclear club uh with their level of scientific understanding and natural resources who haven't um, but again, when you have more actors, it becomes a much more difficult situation to regulate. One of the new technologies coming through is nuclear fusion, though, which I know is still a concept, is still in development. Uh, but I think if I'm right now, we have allowed fusion at very, very high temperatures to produce slightly more electricity than it takes to uh, than it costs to produce that. Um how far away from things like cold fusion are we? And the reason I ask this is that uh, NewScientist.com released some data this year. Now, argue the data if you want, but they said that training a, a single AI can have a carbon footprint that's five times higher than the lifetime emissions of an average car. So AI does have its own carbon footprint. Um, we're going to need new technologies that are going to be downstream of things like electric vehicles and so on so that we don't just power clean cars with dirty fuels. Uh, how much uh, how much is coming through around fusion, or is this just still science fiction and an idea, really, at the moment? Okay, well, I am glad that you asked me this, because my podcast, uh, which I'll plug briefly as Physical Attraction, uh, has done some 27 episodes on a comprehensive history of nuclear fusion over the last year or so, which I've really enjoyed uh, researching and learning more about, um, particularly because for a long time it has occupied this place in people's psyche that is... Once we crack fusion, we'll have clean energy. You see people say clean energy, you see people say cheap energy, you see people say limitless energy in some cases. 
it, it, it's not clean, it's not cheap, and it's not limitless, which is what I would say about fusion. Um, all of those things are true for various different reasons. It's not clean because even though you don't... So in the difference, we should say first, in traditional nuclear power plants, fission, you have heavy isotopes like uh, uranium, which split apart and release energy. In fusion, you have light isotopes like hydrogen and deuterium, which are pushed together, and when they fuse, they also release energy. So you can see actually that the difference here, and the reason why one of them has been an established technology since the 50s, and the other one might not arrive until the 2050s, is because um, of this process of pushing the nuclei together. Now, the sun manages to achieve this. All solar power is ultimately fusion power. Um, but the sun has an advantage, which is that the sun weighs two times 10 to the 30 kilograms. It's very heavy, has a lot of gravitational pressure, which it can rely on to uh, force this fusion to happen uh, in the heart of the sun. The people who are trying to make fusion happen on Earth are doing so at temperatures that are hotter than the heart of the sun, because they don't have that sort of uh, gravitational pressure to rely on. And to overcome this immense uh, electrical repulsion between these nuclei to force them together so that they get close enough to fuse uh, rely it requires an amazing amount of energy which is why you need to have them at such high temperatures so that these nuclei are whizzing around fast enough such that they might actually collide and fuse together and of course to do this you also have to contain them somehow at least this is one branch of fusion that relies on you containing these nuclei in magnetic fields. So since the 1950s, people have been trying various different ways of doing this um, with varying degrees of success. You said uh, that you think that there is a, a procedure where they've developed, uh, they've released more electricity than has been required to power a nuclear power plant. I don't think that's true. Um, the, the record so far in tokamaks, which are these magnetic confinement fusion devices that I described, uh, was about two-thirds of the electricity that was put into, uh, sorry, the heat energy that was put into the plasma was converted into heat energy uh, in the fused plasma. Um, so there's a few things to say about that record. One is that two-thirds is good, yes, but um, the actual requirement for the sort of building to be powered and uh, the various other things that go into keeping this going means that the actual figure is sort of slightly less than two thirds. Another thing to say is that you have the heat energy that's been supplied to the plasma, which is then converted into heat uh, when this fusion happens. That's good, but the heat itself is not electricity. So you need to find some way of converting that heat into useful electricity. In the case of a fossil fuel power plant where we just burn things, uh, fossil fuels, and convert that heat into electricity by uh, boiling water to generate steam, which spins a turbine, the efficiency is typically around 30%. So there's a factor of three, even if you can harness the heat from fusion straight into electricity. But we don't necessarily know that we can do this because the heat is released in the form of these very fast-moving neutrons. These fast-moving neutrons are the reason why fusion power is not necessarily clean either, because when they hit things, the things that they hit become radioactive, um, which means that you imagine all of this plasma that's going around inside a big metal tube, uh, a donut that they call the tokamak, and it's held in place by these magnetic fields. When it fuses together, these neutrons are released and they gradually make the walls of the reactor radioactive. 
So every few years, you will have to uh, replace the walls of the reactor, and that will be nuclear waste. It's not as dangerous as the nuclear waste you get from fission, but you still don't want to put it anywhere near people, so you'll have to find a way of burying that as well. So it doesn't necessarily uh, produce no waste whatsoever. And in addition to that, it's not limitless because although deuterium, which is the sort of fuel for fusion, can potentially be found in seawater, the fusion reactions that we're working on at the moment are the ones with the lowest energy barrier, which are deuterium-tritium reactions. Now, tritium is an isotope of hydrogen. It's very rare. Um, it has a very short half-life, which means it decays quickly, which means there's not much of it to be found on Earth. In fact, one of the only ways that people think you could develop a fusion reactor at the moment would be to have it produce its own fuel. So these fast neutrons that I talked about would be hitting a wall made of lithium, when they hit the wall made of lithium, they would produce more tritium, and you'd have to scavenge that from the inside of the reactor, so the reactor is kind of self-sustaining and producing its own fuel. But this is one of the things that no one necessarily knows if it can actually be done yet. It depends on how good you are at retrieving the tritium from the reactor itself. So when it comes to mainstream fusion efforts of this kind, there's the ITER tokamak, uh, which is the one that's being built in the south of France at the moment. It should go online uh, for the first sort of plasma experiments in the 2020s and maybe it will start uh, developing a proper sort of it, it will go for its own electricity record so i mentioned this two-thirds electricity record that was set in 1997 by the joint european tourists in oxfordshire near me and it's going to take until 2030 for the next generation device eater to have a shot at that target and it's the fact that these fusion reactors are so complicated to build, so expensive and so difficult to create. That I think is really the reason why fusion, there's an old joke about fusion energy that it's 10 years away and always will be. And that's because these devices are so difficult to iterate. It's so hard to build a new one. It takes such an awfully long time. There's so many potential problems that can happen along the way, which is why, you know, you'll have a record that's been set since 1997 and hasn't been broken yet. You won't see that kind of thing in solar power, for example, which is developing much more quickly, or the prices for wind power, which are also developing much more quickly, which is why I think if you're an investor, you should probably put your money into one of those two rather than fusion necessarily. Now, you mentioned, so it, it, it's not all doom and gloom for fusion because while the ITER device reckons it will produce uh, net electricity by 2040, say, and then maybe there will be power plants uh, based on that device in the 2050s and 2060s, 2070s. That's the sort of timescale that they're looking at in mainstream fusion. So when it comes to, you were talking about the carbon emissions from uh, AI and the carbon emissions all over the planet, really, I think in some ways, if you're developing a new source of power that only comes online in 2050, it's too late. We want the UK to be carbon neutral by then. If we want to stick to the two degrees goal of Paris, we really want the world to be carbon neutral by 2050. So if your source of carbon-free electricity only just starts working in 2050, then it's not really relevant to talk about fusion as a solution to climate change, uh, as, our, as our Prime Minister here in the UK recently did. Um, I think he's misguided to suggest that. Even he was saying that we might get it by 2040, but even then, you would need to scale it up. And if each plant takes you 10 years to build, then it's obvious that you're not going to decarbonize your electricity system by 2050 in that way. It's just too slow compared to the alternatives that we have available at the moment. 
but there are other ways that people are trying to do this there are some there's some startup companies at the moment there's one that's spun out of mit called commonwealth fusion systems what they're trying to do is build a tokamak very similar to the eta device but much smaller which means it will be faster to build and the reason they can build one smaller is because they're going to use high temperature superconducting magnets which have a stronger magnetic field so basically the stronger the magnetic field is the smaller you can build the device and they hope to have theirs producing power by 2030. Now, the issue there is this material science question of building these high temperature superconductors that can stand up to the punishing conditions inside a fusion reactor. And no one knows if that will happen. But if that sort of thing is successful, then we might see it in the course of a decade or two. Um, but there's a few caveats to point out here. So one is that you mentioned cold fusion. That Cold fusion is not going to happen <laughs> simply put it was uh, there was a lot of hype around it in the late 1980s because of an experiment by these guys Fleischmann and Pons there's an episode about it in the show basically what they measured what they thought they measured wasn't actual fusion they, they weren't really producing electricity it all came down to measurement errors and people have for an awfully long time after that tried to continue doing the Fleischmann-Pons experiment to see if they can find anything. There was even a recent effort that was funded in part by Google and carried out all over different universities. Uh, they got a paper in Nature about it. Um, but their conclusion was that cold fusion just doesn't work. And it's simple to see why, because, frankly, there's no way around this massive energy barrier that you have to push these nuclei closer together. If you don't heat your nuclei up to these incredibly high temperatures or find some other way of giving them that energy then there's simply no way to get them to fuse and release power. And the second thing I would say about nuclear fusion, now that we've said that mainstream fusion may be 2050s, 2060s if they're successful, uh, startup fusion may be 2040s, 2050s if they're successful, is this idea that it can save us from climate change once it's developed. And I think the issue there is one of finance. I mean, really, in some ways, it, it seems kind of obvious to say it if, if if i go into dragon's den and i have two businessmen uh who are trying to talk to me you know and uh, they're saying they have different ways of producing energy and one of them says i will create hotter matter than exists anywhere else in the universe i will confine it with magnetic fields i will prevent it from exploding outwards like it often does in the course of these experiments that we've done so far and things called disruptions and damaging the walls of the tank. I will contain it for longer than it's ever been contained anywhere else in the world. At the moment, these things are contained for, you know, on the order of, I think the record is five minutes, but it wasn't producing the maximum power then. There's always a trade-off with these things. But um, I will contain it for longer than anyone else has ever contained it. I will find a way to harness these hot neutrons into electricity, and then I will use, I will use those hot neutrons to generate steam, spin a turbine, and make electricity. Um, and if you fund me, I will need $50 billion or $10 billion or a billion dollars or whatever. It will take you 10, 20 years to build something on that scale. And I can start generating profit for you in the course of 20 or 30 years. So that's one investor. And the other investor says, what we're trying to do here is spin a turbine to generate electricity. You know, windmills, I'll just build one of those, but a bit bigger. I can have it built in six months. You can pay me a few million dollars up front and I'll start realizing profit for you by the end of the year. I mean, it's just obvious which one you finance. And so I think if I had an opinion on this, I think it's ultimately going to be that maybe scientists will crack fusion, but even if they do, it will probably be one of the more expensive ways of generating power. And it's difficult to see 
how those costs can come down because those costs are things that are fundamental to the way that we do fusion. You have to build a big reactor. You have to have the huge magnets. You have to uh, find some way of producing your own fuel. All of these things that cost so much, um, they're just not going to be innovated away. And all the time while fusion is trying to work, the prices of wind and solar and storage that you'll need to solve this intermittency issue are falling all the time. It will take you a few weeks, a few months in the lab to come up with new solar cell design and new battery design. Uh, you can model the wind turbines very quickly and come up with new designs for them. Uh, to test a new fusion reactor, um, it will take you 10 years to build it. I mean, there's simple as that. This is the reason why fission power, for example, in even though it's been going since the 1950s, uh, there's been very slow development on the pace of that, and it's it's getting more expensive over time rather than less expensive. One of the reasons is that it's very difficult to uh, put these same forces of innovation to work on that as you can with renewables. So fusion is really interesting science. It's really fascinating stuff. I think when it's achieved, uh, which hopefully will be within my lifetime, it will be the culmination of an incredible effort on behalf of thousands of very, very smart people. But I don't think it's the solution to our energy problem. The scenario you presented with the investors makes some assumptions. And if we took a third investor who had no problem whatsoever with timeline, had incredibly large budgets and a high propensity for risk, including taking on some big bets, we might see different outcomes. Uh, Thomas, what's China up to on the moon? <laughs> China on the moon? I didn't know China was on the moon. Oh, China's on the moon. There's a headline from epochtimes.com, the epochtimes.com, uh, four days ago, China plans to exploit $10 trillion Earth-Moon economic zone. There are minerals, materials, chemicals, etc. on the moon that they think are worth a lot of money. They're up there, they're landing rovers up there, and they plan to start mining the moon from what I can understand. Uh, one of the uh, things they're looking at is helium-3 which according to this article, and I welcome your pushback on it, could be used as a fuel source. And they mention uh, nuclear fusion here, although you may already have debunked that. And they're looking at hydrogen, helium, carbon, hyoxtride, uh, and nitrogen as others. So I would argue that your third investor there is China. And they're not looking, well, they are looking at wind turbines, but they're not looking at short-term investments that make 10 or 50% returns. They're looking at controlling a big stake of our future. And that's one of the reasons that we see them on the moon. Do you, do you take into account countries like China and what their intentions might be when you think about the development rate of things like this? Well, it's certainly true that China has an active nuclear fusion program. But one thing I would say straight away is this idea that helium-3 will be the fuel for fusion. So as I mentioned before, there's lots of different types of fusion reactions you can get. The ones that we're looking at at the moment are the ones with the lowest energy barrier, which is deuterium-tritium. The helium reactions are at a much, much higher energy barrier, which means that they are much, much more difficult in themselves to uh, realize. So all of the problems that we've had so far getting uh, deuterium-tritium to work are multiplied by a factor of 1,000, 10,000 when it comes to getting these other reactions to work. Um, I know that China is interested in fusion and they've got their own devices going. And because they're quite secretive, who knows, maybe that could push our timescale forward from 
2040 to 2030, if we're lucky. Um, but I think the issues surrounding fusion will still be that it will still be more expensive. I mean, I know you've said that there's an investor with deep pockets um, who are willing to spend lots and lots of things on uh, developing fusion. But if it's still the most expensive way, even the people who assume that it works and assume all of the best uh, parameters that we can foresee at the moment will be realized, say that by the time it's developed in the 2050s, it will be the most expensive way of generating electricity. And I just don't see how it can reduce its cost. When you think about the material complexity of building a fusion reactor compared to building a solar panel, you know, in the future, we're going to have solar panels that can basically just be painted onto things. They're already developing these uh, materials at the moment, perovskites and things like this. And uh, ultimately, yeah, I, I think there's all sorts of interesting things to do with uh, space exploration that people are very excited about and uh, getting resources from the moon and all this kind of thing. I think in the near term, we're not going to see it. In the long, long term, it might have some uses. And that's where I think a lot of fusion advocates really see this going as being used in in the much, much further future term. But ultimately, <laughs> there are physical constraints on some of these things. It's a bit like, um, so there's, there's a lot of talk in the climate change community about negative emissions technologies, uh, pulling carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere, which is all very well and good. But you have to remember that the industry that is putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere at the moment is huge in scale. It's the scale of all industry. Every car is doing this. Every fossil fuel power plant is doing this. You can't be incredibly clever and get around the laws of physics because the laws of physics set fundamental constraints on what you can do. So it doesn't matter how uh, much money you spend, how much technological innovation you do, you will be limited in terms of the efficiency of things that you can develop um, always. I mean, this is true. I said that the average fossil fuel power plant is 30% efficient. That's not because people are rubbish at innovating. It's because there are fundamental limits to how uh, much you can do. You know, obviously, if you could change that 30% to 35%, then you're making millions of dollars for someone. So there's an awfully large drive to try and get that kind of thing done. But it just turns out to be very difficult to do. And I think ultimately these constraints will mean that fusion will probably always be more expensive in most circumstances than the renewable alternative. Because I said, if it goes well, it will be the most expensive form of electricity by 2040, 2050. That's in terms of today's prices. So that would assume that this exponential decline in wind, solar and storage that we've seen just stops. And we have no reason to assume that. So... I, I, I'm interested always in what people are doing in terms of fusion. I think it's a really fascinating area of science. And I hope that, you know, we can um, put lots of funding into it and get it realized faster than people uh, are currently envisioning. But even when it's done, I think there are these fundamental limits that will mean it can only ever form a part and perhaps a small part of the, of the overall solution. But, um, you know, it's interesting when it comes to getting resources from uh, the moon. I think it's 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 a very interesting idea. Uh, you just have to wonder how much of it is being done for sort of political reasons, as if to say, I mean, when, when you talk about China, China and the US are really now the two superpowers that are sort of vying for things. When we put humans on the moon in the 1960s, 
you might have immediately thought, ah, oh, of course, this means that we'll soon be colonizing the moon and we'll soon be colonizing uh, different planets, we'll soon be doing all sorts of things. But this was done for political reasons, really, rather than out of any uh, expectation that it would lead to profit. And uh, I, I wonder how much of this sort of talk of exploiting lunar resources and so on at the moment is really uh, more to do with that and more to do with um, a sort of techno-optimistic futurism than actually uh, solid sort of business plans that will lead to uh, profit or benefits later on. Of course, if it is a case of superpower competition, then it would make sense to want to be the first one to establish a mining operation on the moon, for example, even if it's an incredibly loss-making mining operation that's not actually getting you any resources that you really need, because at least you can then say that you were the first ones there. And if the price does come down and it does become viable to do, then you have a sort of, I don't know, you have the uh, toehold in that established for later on. Yes, and national pride. I think I think I remember national pride. It's been a while. <laughs> well, certainly that's what drove the space race for sure. Rather no, no, no uh, from a US perspective, we're coming any soon. Absolutely, I made a, it made a wonderful statement for the US, but I just meant here in the UK. Oh yeah, uh, national pride is is not high on our uh, list of enjoyable activities at the moment. Um, but you made me think of Google there actually, and. Um, the, the Google Corporation, of course, is called Alphabet, but it's not Alphabet, it's Alphabet. And the whole point of the organization was to make these alpha bets, these big bets on things like AI and other technologies so that they could have a portion of their business and their revenues and so on that would be looking at the big, big goals, just like we're talking about there with China. I want to ask you a few bonus questions now, Thomas, if you don't mind. Of course. The first one is, what view or belief do you hold that you would consider to be uncommon? Well, I, I, I hate to do one that I've already sort of talked about a little bit, but the, the best answer I can think to this really is, uh, is this fusion question. Because a lot of people who are sceptical of nuclear fusion think that it won't be achieved. They think that it won't happen because people said in the 50s that we'll have it in 20 years. People said in the 70s that we'll have it in 20 years. People said in the 90s we'd have it in 20 years, etc., etc. They see no reason why there won't be further delay. I think that it will happen. I think that we will see net electricity being generated by, uh, by fusion by 2050. That's not the reason for my scepticism. My scepticism is just that once we've actually finally achieved that symbolic goal of generating net electricity from fusion, people will realise that it's the most expensive way of generating electricity you can possibly imagine. And I think at that point, funding for it will dry up and that will be why we won't see uh, nuclear fusion on the grid anytime soon. So it's a sort of, I guess it's kind of qualified scepticism. Um, and although I'm not a huge fan of the man, I, I did note that Elon Musk actually feels the same way. He said that we have the fusion reactor we need, and that's the sun. What's, what is humanity's greatest challenge? So uh, what sort of timescale are we talking about? You can choose from one of three, now, in your lifetime, or ever. Okay. Um, I think right now, climate change is hard to look past we have seen 20, 30 years of warnings about climate change, increasingly vociferous. We've seen impacts getting worse all around us. Uh, we've seen in 2015 an international agreement to limit climate change uh, and to reduce carbon emissions. And carbon emissions have risen 
every single year, with the one exception being 2009, when we had a global financial crisis. So not only is the problem getting worse, because the problem depends on the cumulative amount of carbon dioxide you've emitted and the amount that's in the atmosphere, but the rate at which we're making the problem get worse is getting worse. So in many ways, we're someone who we're deeply in debt and we're just getting more and more credit cards out at the moment. Now, there are really good signs that will uh, that uh, make me more optimistic about this challenge. But I think it, it hits so many issues uh, with the way our societies are organized at the moment. It's very difficult to see how anything other than extremely cheap uh, green energy and extremely cheap uh, energy efficiency techniques, things like insulating homes and so on that have to be done to get this to work and extremely cheap batteries for electric vehicles and so on. If we continue to live in a world that is dominated as our world is by market forces, then this problem is never going to be solved um, unless the alternatives, the green alternatives become cheaper than the polluting uh, alternatives that we have at the moment, because most attempts to regulate these things have had uh, difficult uh, effects, effects that weren't necessarily the ones that were intended. One of my favorite examples of an unintended consequence from regulation is uh, the US put a mandate on fuels. They said, okay, 10% of all of our fuels will come from biofuels because they thought that biofuels uh, were a greener uh, source of fuel. And it's true, they are. Um, theoretically, with a biofuel, you grow the crop, you convert it into fuel, you burn the fuel. Uh, the fuel emits carbon dioxide when you burn it, but it took it in when it was growing as a crop, and so the whole process is carbon neutral. So this idea that you have this bioethanol mandate in the US, 10% of their fuels would be made of bioethanol, sounds good on paper. What happened in practice was all of the big corn farmers in the US, who are uh, a very powerful lobby there, uh, they're very good at getting their political views put across, um, they started converting their corn into bioethanol. Now, corn is not a great biofuel. Um, it just happened that the Americans had a lot of corn because everyone there grew corn. So consequently, we have the situation where a third of U.S. corn production goes to creating about half of their biofuel. So we have a third of U.S. corn production, which is their biggest crop, you know, is converted to a, 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 a tiny fraction of the fuels that are being used in the U.S., and what are these fuels being used on? They're being used on massive gas-guzzling SUVs. I mean, SUVs were the second biggest cause of increased emissions uh, from 2010 to 2018. Those extra credit cards that we're still taking out, more of that was spent on SUVs than even agriculture in other countries. You know, the, the, only, two, the only thing bigger than that was more fossil fuel power generation across the world. But SUVs are what we're basically spending our additional debt on. And so... A policy intervention, which sounded great, make sure that everyone puts biofuel in their cars and people will find cheap ways of developing biofuel, ended up creating this massive perverse incentive, which has meant we're converting food stocks that could be used to feed people into a tiny, tiny fraction of the emissions reductions that are required in a very, very inefficient way that probably when you assess it overall, is not really doing anything to dent carbon emissions. And it just goes to show how difficult it can be to intervene on this system and i think why a lot of invention interventions that have happened so far have basically not really contributed anything to the slowing down of the increase of fossil fuels so i think in the short term climate change and also this idea of these disruptive technologies and how we're going to govern them and 
I, I don't want to be sort of Pollyanna-ish about it or anything, but I think if if these disruptive technologies that we're worried about happening do arise, we're not ready for them now. We are not ready for them now, and they could cause a lot of uh, devastation before we really uh, have a chance to react. Can you give an example? Well, I mean, so one of the things that interested me when I was researching the uh, the series that we had, which was called Teotwalki, which was about all these sort of speculative end of the world scenarios, was um, have you ever wondered why bird flu and swine flu were considered such big threats, whereas the normal strains of flu um, weren't, we weren't as worried about them? The reason is that when a disease crosses from an animal into a human, it's not really calibrated for humans. Um, because the ideal thing for a flu to do is to make you cough and sneeze and spread the flu to other people um, as much as you can, but not kill you. Because if it kills you, then you're not hosting the flu anymore. So it's bad for the flu virus if it kills its host. So all of the natural diseases that we live with have most of them not really evolved to kill us, if that makes sense. Uh, they've evolved to transmit uh, to as many other hosts as they possibly can um, before killing us, if they do kill us. And if they kill us, it's probably in the process of getting us to be good vectors for the disease, if that makes sense. So you can imagine now a bioengineered pandemic. This could be really, really subtly done in such a way that you could you wouldn't have any of the issues that these diseases have where they're trying not to kill the host. You could imagine some sort of horrendous disease that might spread like flu uh, and just have flu-like symptoms for the first 14 days, the first 30 days, and then immediately start attacking all of the organs and killing the, the person. I mean, this is a weapon of mass destruction. And I, I don't, I'm not a biologist, I have to say, I'm a physicist. But I don't know that there's really that much stopping someone from developing this kind of weapon in the next five, ten years. And then if they did something like that, then I just don't see us being able to respond to it. And of course, maybe you imagine a sort of flu pandemic like the Spanish flu after the First World War, which was one of these strains of flu that happened to be unusually deadly uh, and did kill a lot of its hosts. That killed more people than the First World War. If we have an event like that nowadays, not only would it kill 10 times more people again, perhaps, but just imagine what it would do to our global society. Um, just imagine how governments would change and react. I think th there's all sorts of terrifying things that you can dream about that may soon be in the hands of a larger number of people than we would like. Uh, not all people that we necessarily trust. And if that happens... Uh, and we haven't, you know, regulated it properly in advance, then the, the the sort of the first attack could already be the largest one, if you see what I mean. So that's the kind of thing I think, alongside our sort of failure to deal with climate change, that that keeps me up at night. Overcoming climate change clearly is very important for us. But what else would you say constitutes success for humanity? This is very interesting. So we went back, we were talking a long time ago about uh, the general artificial intelligence and this idea of what would you program it to do if you could. Um, and we had this utilitarianism, obviously, and it's this idea of the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And it, it comes down to how you define good and what we want out of the world. You could imagine a world where we use these new technologies to uh, engineer ourselves into being happy 
there's no reason to think that that would necessarily be impossible if you had sufficiently advanced technology. But is it a desirable world? I think for reasons that we'd find very difficult to explain, we'd find that quite philosophically unsatisfying. So I think what constitutes success for humanity is eradicating the injustices that exist in the world at the moment. I'm talking about global inequality, which there's a very interesting book that I recommend everyone read called The Great Leveller by Walter Scheidel. And uh, he, he goes through, he's an anthropologist, he goes through civilizations throughout history and he finds uh, civilizations from, you know, tribes, uh, medieval Europe, all sorts of different parts of the world, all sorts of different regions of history. And he uses historical reconstructions to figure out how unequal the societies were. And what it turns out is that Humanity and all these different societies are locked in a cycle. Inequality increases steadily most of the time. And then some disaster happens and inequality goes back down to zero or it goes back down to a lower value. A classic example that you hear a lot in history textbooks is the Black Death, uh, which here in Britain you know, completely ravaged the country, killed, I don't want to know, I don't know how many people, but a, a very large proportion uh, of the a significant proportion of the people um, who were agricultural labourers and so on at the time. And this actually reduced inequality because the few farmers who were left alive, the few wage labourers who were left alive, could charge more for their services because there were fewer people competing with them. If you have more to lose, then a catastrophe damages you more than anyone else. Say it's the Blitz and uh, two homes are destroyed. One of them's a massive mansion and the other one is a two up, two down, uh, small house, you know, terraced house one person has lost more wealth than the other and therefore inequality has been reduced. And it, it turns out that these disasters, uh, mass mobilization, warfare is an example, natural disasters are an example that Scheidel points to again and again, pandemics and things like this. These are the things that reduce inequality um, historically throughout civilization. Uh, revolutions are, of course, another great example. Uh, inequality did go down briefly in 1917 in Russia, which is the kind of thing you can do if you're willing to execute all the aristocrats. Um, I think so success for humanity and a society at the moment, I think, would be finding a way to break this cycle so that we can reduce inequality, so that we can share the benefits of our new technology and our new systems of doing things with as many people as possible without some sort of violent disruption, some sort of horrible catastrophe that actually shocks us into uh, making the world a more equal place. I think that's short term success. And long-term success is all that fancy stuff about, you know, colonizing the universe and having billions of people living billions of happy lives, anything like that. It's it's difficult to look too far beyond what exists at the moment, because I think our our understanding of what success is would change over time, if that makes sense. It does make sense, yes. And that stat you're looking for is bbc.co.uk, quote, 30 to 45% of the population in the UK was killed by Black Death between 1348 and 1350. So you were absolutely accurate about the devastation there. What is the best possible outcome for this relationship between humans and intelligent machines? It's See, this is, this is where... So I've said before that I'm not that worried about artificial intelligence, general intelligence as a sort of short-term problem. But when you think about, when you pose that question, which I think is a fascinating question, what is the best possible relationship between humans and intelligent machines? It's really difficult because if you take this and you may disagree, people listening may disagree, I may disagree in my more pessimistic moments, but if you take this notion that we can actually in invent an intelligence that is 
on the scale of human intelligence seriously, uh, or something even far, far more intelligent than uh, humanity seriously, then envisioning what a good version of that relationship might look like is an extremely difficult thing to do. Because we can't conceive of how we'll relate to these things. It's much, much easier to imagine the dystopias. People think about worlds where we'd have AI that are basically slaves doing tasks for us. Um, or even, you see, the, the interesting concept, if you're actually able to program another mind sufficiently well, is that you could create a slave that would be happy to be a slave. You could create an algorithm, a mind, that would be satisfied and find pleasure in doing whatever you told it to, whether that's accountancy or... Uh, actuarial work or digging ditches, whatever you like. I mean, if that is a positive realization of our relationship with intelligent machines, I don't know. You could say that it has benefits for both parties. We have humans that have all our work being done for us by intelligent machines and intelligent machines that are perfectly happy to do it. Somehow it seems like it's a little bit unfair from our tendency to anthropomorphize these machines that this should be the way that it would work. I mean, one utopian fantasy that always kind of uh, got me when I read it as a kid is this, there's this book, Blood Music, by an author called Greg Bear, and uh, he hypothesized about a world where uh, basically AI would take the form of these nanorobots, and these nanorobots split and developed out of all control, uh, they became super intelligent, and they took over the world, and they appeared to wipe out the human race. So throughout this, our protagonists are trying to avoid these nanorobots and they're trying to escape from what they're about to do and they're sort of running away from them and trying to stay alive. But eventually they're subsumed by this goop of the nanorobots and you think, oh, our protagonists are dead. But then you're looking at the book and you see there's 50 pages left and you realise that what they've done, uh, these intelligent uh, machines, is sort of subsume the human race into a sort of heavenly simulation where... They're capable of talking to all of their loved ones. All of their consciousnesses are preserved. They're capable of uh, wandering around in, you know, beautiful landscapes, beautiful settings, visiting all of the different places that exist in the world. Um, there's no sort of need for disharmony or disquiet. Um, everyone is sort of enjoying this uh, incredibly abundant, incredibly rich, uh, heaven-like lifestyle. The, the reason that I thought this was so interesting is because then you almost get into the perception of, well, if we did sort of liberate this power, is this really what we want? What do we want? I'm not sure we know. So I think when it comes to talking about a good relationship between humans and intelligent machines, it's almost unfathomable the range of different ways that this could unfold. There's some nice scenarios where we sort of treat each other as equals or we allow the AI to go off and do its own thing, or the AI creates a nice world for us to live in, or alternatively we create a nice uh, world for it to live in. But it, it's almost it's almost so ill-defined as to be very difficult to comprehend what any of this might look like. But I think the reason that I'm happy there's philosophers like Stuart Armstrong who are working on this thing is I think if you think this problem has to be solved in the next 50 years, you better start now because it's a really complicated problem imagining a future where we can coexist in a positive way alongside another intelligent perhaps far more intelligent than us uh, entity if that makes sense it does and a wonderful question that you put out there as well the simple but brilliant what do we want and if we can cure disease 
and get rid of the postcode lottery and solve the inequality issues and give every single person on this planet an opportunity to enjoy a, a, a wondrous life in which destruction and livestock and so on weren't part of the equation. Then asking that question again now, what do we want? <laughs> Just makes the mind boggle. What, what do you think humanity once knew, but now we have forgotten? It's interesting. Um, I think this is difficult to talk about, but I did hear an interesting interview recently with uh, the documentary filmmaker Adam Curtis, who I'm sure some of the people listening will have seen uh, things of. And actually, I didn't think much of him during the interview. There were a lot of things he talked about, especially in terms of climate change, that I thought he was fairly ill-informed on. But um, one of the things that he was very good at talking about was this idea that society has changed in a way that has made it more individualistic. So this is not necessarily true of the whole of humanity. I think I'm just focusing on the people uh, in the West and the people that I know, really, um, and the, the sort of culture that we see around us. And it's this idea that we have become extremely individualistic, um, extremely motivated by our own self-image, and our own uh, desires, and our own hierarchy of needs, so to speak, um, such that everyone is fixated on their own success and their own career, their own uh, place within history, in a sense. And to do this, we've lost a sense of the collective, according to Adam Curtis, and I think he does have a point here. We've We've lost the sense of giving yourself up and giving yourself to other people and the well-being of the community. Um, because to do such a thing is no longer a necessity to survive. There's a thing in psychology that I think is called Dunbar's number, which is this idea that you can only really maintain relationships with uh, a, a few hundred people at once because this was the size of a tribal community that would tend to form and once upon a time it was necessary for you to be part of such a community really in order to survive and there was I think more of a collective action people did more things for the sake of the collective group that they were part of and I think now technology and the organization of society has enabled people to be more selfish perhaps more individualistic and i wonder if instead of this so if you follow my arguments about uh, disruptive technologies arising uh, and having to be regulated instead of organizations trying to regulate the behavior of the individual if we had a more collective approach to problems if we viewed ourselves uh, more coherently uh, as a group then there might possibly be less of a temptation to uh, create and deploy such destructive technologies. So I think this could be something we've forgotten uh, that we once knew. But of course, the issue now is we're no longer limited to these communities of 300, 400, 500 people. You or I can look at the news and we can see what's happening to any of the billions of people all around the world, people who we never would have met under normal circumstances, people in, in a population the size of which the world has never known. And I think that sense of belonging to 
a larger whole and that whole being humanity in in some ways it's something we once knew but we've forgotten and in some ways it's something that i think we never knew but we need to learn i've got a special bonus bonus question for you thomas okay go ahead what's your beef with elon musk (laughs) okay well my beef with elon musk is oh it's i suppose it's not a massive beef but um I think in in some ways it's a little bit like uh, some films that I'm not a huge fan of where the fan base of the film is more irritating than the film itself. And so Elon Musk has made some decisions that aren't great. He's done some things with his company that aren't necessarily well advised one example would be the time he basically tried to inflate his own share price by saying he was taking tesla private um he's insulted people on twitter he's pursued sort of weird personal vendettas against individual people and he's made some sort of claims about technology that can perhaps be seen as a bit misleading This isn't to say that the bad things that he's done have outweighed the good, but I think the issue is that if you ever find yourself attacking him, an army of defenders immediately um, come to his sort of rescue saying, well, what has anyone but Elon Musk ever done to uh, advance technology or so on? I just, in general, I think it's really a Silicon Valley problem uh, that we have at the moment, but there's sort of too much of a focus on the maverick individual CEO and their potential to change things. And I think if you, if you know the story of Theranos, uh, the blood testing company that didn't really have any working technology whatsoever, um, a lot of that was driven by the sort of worship of the CEO. And I think Elon Musk, although you know Tesla is a great company and what he's doing with batteries and solar cells is amazing, and I'm a big fan of that, I think... You can't identify any one person with these industries and this tendency and where his decisions and his decision making process uh, conflict with the goals that we all have for this kind of technology. We shouldn't be afraid to say so. There's no there's no harm in that, I don't think. So I'm reluctant to describe myself as his fan for that reason, because I think we should be fans of I mean, if the last few years, at least in terms of looking at people, have taught us anything, it's that hero worship is often a dangerous game, isn't it? People have flaws, we should acknowledge that, and we should be fans of ideals and uh, maybe technologies rather than necessarily individuals. Seth Godin says that power doesn't corrupt, power reveals, and absolute power therefore absolutely reveals, and that sounds like you're referring to some of that with Elon Musk. Thomas, thank you graciously so much for your time today. You're very, very welcome. It's been great talking to you, and thanks for providing me with so many interesting questions.